great. Okay, uh, I'd love to hear a few responses. Um, best, best volunteer program, best volunteer project that you've ever been involved in. I can't really see you, but if anyone's brave enough to sh put up a hand and shout out, I'd love to hear best thing you've been involved in. Nothing. Like, never done anything. I know that's not true. Come on, best thing you've been involved in. Yeah, go on. Soup kitchen. Superb. Love it. Any others? Yeah, go on. Training women to support other women who are vulnerable with mental health issues. Whilst they're pregnant. I missed one word out. Sorry. Excellent. Uh, any more? We've got a high bar, haven't we? Okay. Well, there's something really fantastic, isn't there, when people come together to achieve something for a common good. And we're going to think this morning about what it means to build in the kingdom of God. For the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah. We've been in Nehemiah 1 and Nehemiah chapter 2, thinking about the why of kingdom building, thinking about the where of kingdom building. But today, we're going to get into the how and the what of kingdom building. And we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 3. So if you have a Bible open in front of you, that always helps. It could be a paper one, it could be papyrus, it could be uh, on a device, it could be literally whatever it is that you bring with you to church. Um, and if you don't have any of those things, uh, it's going to be on the screen. And Nehemiah chapter 3, starting in verse 1, uh, which is going to be read for us this morning. Hey everybody, I'll be reading from Nehemiah 3, uh, 1 to 20. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Miramoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs, and next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to work under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Joeda, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Besodea. They made its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men of Gibeah and Mizpah. Melatiah of Gibeon and Jaden of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of the trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Harahiah, was one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephaeh, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Judea, son of Hiramoth, made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hashabnea, made repairs next to him. Malkijah, son of Harim and Hashub, son of Pahath-Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. 
Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zenoah. They built it and put its doors with their bowls and bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Melchizedek, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakerem. He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and their bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalun, son of Kol Jose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden, as far as the steps going down from the city of David. We're just gonna keep going. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of a half district of Beth Zur, made repairs up to a point up opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of a half district of Kila, carried out repairs for his next district. Next to him, the repairs were made by their fellow Levites under Benui, son of Henadad, ruler of the other half district of Kila. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. That's all I have for you guys. <laughs> Do you know, if I got halfway through that and the, and the siren went off, I wouldn't have stopped either. <laughs> um, that is the hardest reading anyone has ever had of Indish Pasadena. Um, I think we should pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for Laura and uh, for her amazing ability to read. Um, and thank you for your word, which speaks into our life. And so as we go through this complex list of names and events, would you open up our hearts, uh, not just to hear history, but to hear your heart and to hear your calling on our lives uh, for kingdom building, we pray. Amen. Um, so this is a really fascinating passage, isn't it? Um, um, but it's quite hard as you read it for the first time to realize what's going on. We actually let Laura off the last 10 verses because we felt like you had a bit of an idea of what was going on by verse 20. Um, it's a bit like, you know, where's Waldo of the different events that we need to unpack in the kingdom story? And so this morning, we're going to try and get under the surface a little bit and think not just about physical walls, but we're going to think about what's really going on in the kingdom of God in um, this passage. But to give us a little bit of context, the first thing you need to know is what's going on is actually a historically attested to, historically accurate account of what happened in Jerusalem two and a half thousand years ago. Um, one of the things I love about the Bible so very, very much is that it's not just symbolism. It's not just nice ideas. It's not just like faith and religion. It's actually history in places. They recently did an archaeological dig in the middle of Jerusalem and they found some of this part of the wall. Two and a half thousand years ago it was repaired and, and some of it was built. And they actually found it, which is so absolutely brilliant. And just to give you a kind of picture, this won't come up very well on the screens, I don't think, but let's just try and get up. Here's a bit of a picture. This is an eyesight test. And I failed already. Um, but if you see up at the top, um, on the top of the, the picture, you've got the northern side of the Jerusalem walls. 
So in verse 1 to 5, we read about the rebuilding of the walls and the gates by the priests, the high priests, those who worked in the temple. Then from verse 16 to 14, 6 to 14, you've got the west wall, um, and that was uh, built by, uh, mostly by men and some women as well, which is why that's probably the best side of the wall that's probably still standing. And then on the other side, on verse 15 to 32, and we didn't read all of that, you've got the eastern wall being rebuilt. But of course, beyond this just being about stones laying on stones and security and gates and things, this is actually a story of the kingdom of God coming. And something I just want you to have in your mind as we go through today, and it's been true for the last few weeks and it will continue to be true, is that whenever we think about Nehemiah, we're actually looking at something that happened beyond Nehemiah. So Nehemiah was a guy who risked his life so that God's people could be reunited in God's first chosen city. But of course, Nehemiah comes 500 years before the ultimate Nehemiah, the guy, the one, the king, God, who came to earth and gave his life so that God's people could become citizens of the ultimate city, the kingdom of God. And that's the kind of focus that we want to have this morning, that this isn't so much about Jerusalem as it is about God's kingdom coming on earth. It's the God's kingdom coming that we are so concerned with here at Vintage Pasadena. That's why we are here, because we recognize that God has called us to be kingdom people in his kingdom story. And so some things I want to look at with you this morning. Um, the first thing I want to think about with you this morning is very simple. It's just this. It's that the kingdom is built on earth by God using us. We. We are builders in the kingdom. Um, I don't know if you noticed it. You'd have been amazing if you'd have managed to spot all this in and amongst the sirens and everything else that was going off in that reading. Um, but who built this wall? Who repaired it? Who built the gates? Well, there's goldsmiths perfume makers, Levites, priests. There's even in verse 12, this guy called Shalom, who has the, he's the originator of the bring your daughter to work day. Do you notice that verse 12? He brought his daughters to come and build the wall with him. There are men, there are women, there are clergy, there are laity, there are representatives for pretty much every single different part of society in Israel working together alongside, alongside, next to him, next to him, next to him, becoming part of this kingdom-building story. And of course, what it tells us is very simply this. Everybody gets to play part in the kingdom-building story. Um, if you think back to you know, how far back you can think in the Bible, not quite as far as Adam and Eve, but if you go back to people like Abraham um, and Moses, and you think about how did God interact with humanity in the time of Abraham and Moses. Um, let's think about Moses. Let's pick him up for an example. So Moses particularly meets God's presence, his holiness. He encounters God where? Go on, shout out someone. Come on. At the first time. Burning bush, thank you. It wasn't a trick question, it was very straightforward. He encounters God's holiness, that God's presence comes where? At a burning bush. When? At a particular moment of time. For whom? Just for Moses. And for a particular purpose, which is to rescue God's people out of slavery in captivity. Think about when Moses goes into, the, uh, when they leave the promised land and Moses is journeying with the people toward the promised land. It's almost like Moses is God's chosen anointed one. He's the one who's constantly standing in the gap between God and humanity going like, please God, would you just do this? Please God, don't, don't do this. Please God. And it seems like it's very, very particular. 
But when we then move forward, we sort of start at Moses and we start to move forward, you then get the temple, right? Where is God's presence? When Israel is formed as a nation, it's in the temple. It's not in a particular time anymore. It's accessible all the time. It's not necessarily for one person. It's for the nation of Israel, but it's very particular, right? It's still very, very specific because it is all centered around the holy of holies, this one uh, place where people can encounter God. But when Jesus dies on the cross, one of the things we miss, probably because partly we're not, we're not Jews, and it's, we miss the symbolism of this, is that when it says Jesus died on the cross, something very amazing happened, which is that the temple curtain from the top to the bottom was ripped into two pieces. And that was a symbolic, powerful act to say that God's holiness, God's spirit, God's presence, God's kingdom was no longer confined to the holy of holies, this tiny inaccessible place, but went out to all places, to all people. How? Through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're here, Pentecost Sunday, 2021, celebrating that when at Pentecost the Holy Spirit came, suddenly God's presence was not limited to one person, or one place, but actually through the Holy Spirit, suddenly God's presence, God's kingdom exploded out to include all those who know and love and are caught up in that Jesus story. Are you with me? Good, yeah. So in fact, if you think about that ark, because often in scripture you, do, you don't just go Old Testament, throw it away, get the New Testament easier. You actually have like a narrative arc. In fact, if you go through that narrative arc, you start at this very narrow place and you walk all the way through to, if you go right to the end of the Bible, you get to Revelation. And right at the end of Revelation, you see this picture of one day what heaven will look like. It says in Revelation 21, and particularly around kind of verses 22, it says, in heaven, there will be a new city, but in the city, there's no temple. Why is there no temple? because you don't need a place for God's presence to dwell. Why? Because it dwells with everybody. God dwells with his people. In fact, in the new heaven, there's not even any walls in the kingdom because you don't need to keep out people or anything like that. If you're there at that moment, if you're invited into that story, you are free to experience the fullness, the unfiltered nature of God's presence with you. That's what heaven looks like. And because we are on the heaven side of Jesus, because we're on the Holy Spirit side of history, because we have the Spirit of God living in us, it is a long way of simply saying this, we are part of the story of the kingdom. The Holy Spirit is not about a building or a temple or an organization. Where do people encounter God's presence in the world today? Here's the good news and the bad news. Through you. Through you. You carry the presence of God into the places where you go. So much so that when Peter, who was obviously a first century Jew, he speaks about this. He says in 1 Peter 2.5, he said, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You are a holy priesthood. And so when we think about kingdom building, we don't have to think particularly about how are we going to build a big wall I mean, I come from a country where we love to build big walls around churches and they're very old and very cold and local, all like that. We're not about big walls particularly, but we are about being the kingdom of God. We don't just build stones into walls. We are actually the stones of the wall of the kingdom. You are not separate from the kingdom. You are not an observer of the kingdom. You are, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the very kingdom that God is building on earth, right? 
I hope that excites you or scares you or both, because it should. It's an incredibly awesome privilege. You know, when, when Paul's talking about it, he says it's a bit like the kingdom of God is like a body. And I talk about this a lot because I love it. It's like some parts of us, some of us, we're like the toe. Some of us are the elbow. Some of us are the earlobe. Some of us are, I don't know, something less glamorous or more glamorous. But we are all part of the body. What God is building in his kingdom on earth is us. And we get to join in in that story. And I love it because it's so different from what most people are told about being a Christian. I mean, sadly, and I don't think it's a theological position, it's just how churches often operate, is we say, you get to be a spectator, the professionals get to be the kingdom, and you get to suck up the wisdom of the professional people. And actually, the picture of the kingdom is we, and it's us, and it's about togetherness when we do this. That's why spiritual gifts are so important. Yesterday morning, uh, Dr. Bob Logan, who's um, a professor of this kind of stuff and uh, teaches at Fuller, he led a spiritual gifts workshop yesterday morning, and it was great to hear the stories of how God was helping people find their shape, the shape of their stone, their part of the puzzle, so that they could contribute fully to the places where God is inviting them to build the kingdom. I think it's really amazing, right? I think it's exciting. I hope you're excited by it, right? And it's a cool thing because it means that we get to see God's kingdom grow on the earth. I mean, I'll just give you an example about this. So if you went back kind of 50 years, in, particularly in this nation, very deeply Christian nation 50 years ago, if you'd have asked the question, how does someone become a Christian, probably it would have been something like this. Well, people would have recognized that Christianity is broadly a good thing. They would have had respect for churches, that there would have been this understanding fundamentally that the claims of Christianity are true. But maybe what people needed was that they needed to make the transition from the it's out there stuff to actually I need the conviction of sin. I need that filling of the Holy Spirit. And so you know, people like Billy Graham brought such power and conviction as they, people heard that and they, they made that transition to personal faith in Jesus Christ. But by about 20 years ago, particularly if you went thinking about places like LA, people were starting to get more and more questioning of that truth. It's like, well, is it true? Is it real? What makes it more true than the claims of New Ageism or something like that? And so then we had to have things like the case for Christ and this logical positioning to understand that Christianity matters and is true. Well, today, as far as we can see in the post-Christian, post-modern, please Jesus, post-pandemic world that we're going to be living, I think it's just going to be post-everything. I think the future world will just be called post, and then we'll have to think of something else. But like in the future world that we are discovering and unpacking all the time, it seems like people are no longer interested in absolute truth claims. People are no longer looking for an authority figure to stand on a stage, even if they have a British accent, and tell them what they should believe, right? That's not what people are looking for. People are looking for something that works. People are looking for something that feels real, something that changes their life on a day-to-day basis. And people aren't going to be walking into churches, I don't think, in LA over the next years just looking for that instinctively. They're going to need to encounter the kingdom in a different way. And the likely way that people are going to encounter the kingdom of God in a different way in the future is through you. Through you. It's very likely in LA in the future that people might know exactly one Christian. Your friend will know one Christian. Who will it be? It will be you. They might only know one. And they're going to be looking at you going, does it work? Is it real? He says he's a Christian, but does it change his life? 
Does it make a difference in his life? Is it a structure and something that I want to explore for myself? That's why Alpha is so brilliant, because Alpha doesn't say, you should believe this. Alpha says, come, bring your friends. Let's explore together. Let's see if there is some sort of way that this thing could be true in future. And the beautiful thing is, and we've seen this all over the world, and I believe we're going to see it in this nation in future, is that when we together take seriously what it is to live the kingdom on our streets, in our neighborhoods, at our schools, in our workplaces, when we don't just retreat into our own little huddles, but we go out and realize we are the interface of the kingdom in the world, that's when we start to see things happen. Right? Amen. That's where we start to see people come to faith because we get the privilege of being part of that amazing story. And the cool thing is, it's not just that the kingdom grows that way, but also we grow that way. Like, how many people here would like to grow a bit this coming year as a follower of Jesus? Six and a half people, right? <laughs> Maybe seven. No, we, we want to grow. I want to grow as a follower of Jesus this year. Now, I'll let you into a secret, right? There's a conversation that pastors never want to have with their parishioners or their congregation, right? And it always goes like this. Pastor, I'm so sorry, but I'm leaving your church because I'm not growing anymore, right? Um, Praise Jesus, we haven't had that one yet. (laughs) So don't feel like you need to now have that after the service with me. Because it's basically code language, right? It's code for what? Your preaching and teaching sucks, (laughs) That's what it's code for. That's what it means. Um, And now, don't get me wrong, right? We absolutely need to be immersing ourselves deeply in this. I would never say to anybody, go and find a church which doesn't believe in the Bible, which doesn't preach richly in teaching. I'd never do that. We believe that when we open the Bible together, like we're doing this morning, it's not even like a podcast. It's not even like a video. God's spirit dwells as we learn together. But what I'm increasingly realizing in my life is that I need more than just the theory. I need something more than just sitting through sermons if I'm going to grow. Now, I was thinking about this. If, you are, um, if you're about 30, some of you guys are about 30. I believe that I'm like 30, but I'm not like 30 anymore quite. I wish I was. Now, if you're 30 and you grew up going to church... So probably around the age of 20, you had to sit through sermons. Before that, they cooked you pizza and showed you videos, and you got to do cool things in this thing called student ministry and youth groups. But now you have to sit in sermons. So by the time you're 30, you've got 10 years of sermons under your belt, one a week. That means that you've probably got about 500 sermons in your bank now. Really cool, because you're faithful, committed to come every Sunday. right? If you're 40, you've probably got 1,000 sermons under your belt now. If you're 60... You've probably got 2,000 sermons under your belt. And often what we do in the church is someone says, I want to grow. You know, I'm, I, I want to keep growing. And what do we say? Before I get to heaven, what do you need? You need just all you need is another couple of thousand sermons, right? If you just get a couple more thousand sermons, then you are going to be the fully formed person. And if the sermons that you're getting are not good enough, just go and find someone who's a better preacher because then they will fully form you into being the fully formed disciple that you need to be ready for heaven. Now, yeah, you laugh, but it's true, right? I'm not saying we don't need the theory. Of course we do. We need as many sermons as we can get. We need the deepest expository teaching that we can get. But if all you do is you learn theory in your life, you will not grow. It isn't enough. In any form of life, in any place of life, if you want to grow into something, you need theory and you need practice, right? You need theory and you need practice. So if you want to be a teacher... You want to be a doctor, 
You want to be a lawyer, even if you want to be a pastor, don't recommend it. No, I do recommend it. If you want to be any of those things, how do you learn to be those things? You go to school to get the theory, and you keep on reading the journals and going through the, the process of learning. But you also have to practice the stuff, right? You have to learn to do the stuff. You know, if you went to see a doctor and you said, oh, you know, doctor, like my, my wrist is really damaged, and I need you to surgery on my wrist and you're going to find this great doctor. And if that doctor doesn't know the difference between your wrist and your ankle, right, you're gone. <laughs> I would imagine you'd be gone fast, because that person doesn't have the theory. He doesn't, hasn't been to medical school. He doesn't understand what he needs to do. But equally, if you go to see a doctor, and they say, oh, I can tell you all about the tendons. I can tell you about the ligaments. I can tell you about the bones and the nerve endings and everything that you know. And you say to them, great, how many times have you performed this surgery before? And they say, never. How many times have you ever performed any surgery before? And the answer is, never. Guess what? You're gone, right? If in order for us to grow in anything in life, we have to do the work of the thing. We have to make the mistakes. We have to try. We have to get some skin in the game. I love the seminary that I went to because my seminary was kind of a bit different because they basically said, you can come to seminary, but you can only come half the week, and the other half the week, you've got to run a church. That was literally how it went. Um, and we did, and we made a mess, and we tried our best, and actually we learn amazingly by getting into the thing, by trying it. That's how we learn, that's how we grow in any space of life. And before you think that was just an invention of you know, 20th or 21st century of modern educational theory, it's not. That is how Jesus taught the disciples, right? When Jesus called these first little group of people, they knew nothing they were a mess. They were fishermen. They were all over the place. They knew nothing really of theology and the kingdom of God. And Jesus taught them. He taught them theory. He taught them about the law. He taught them in parables and stories. He did one-on-ones. He did three-on-ones. He did 12-on-ones. He did small group sessions. He did seminars. He did field trips. He did the whole thing. In fact, he even did like massive conferences on hillsides in front of 1,000 people. He did the whole thing. But then he sent them. He sent them out. It says he sent the 12, and then later on he sent the the 72. And it's amazing when he sends the 72, he says in Luke 10, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and the places where he was about to go. He sent them to try it with his authority. He says in verse 9, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. And then if you skip down to verse 17, it says, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. It's like you sent us out and it's amazing because guess what? It works. Like it works. There's another time when Jesus sends um, the 12 out and they come back and they go like, it doesn't seem to work. It's like we tried this and it didn't work and we're not quite sure what happens. And, and Jesus says, well, that's okay because it's like this and it's like this. How do you learn? How do we grow? We try. We get involved. We give things a go. Um, a bunch of years ago, and when we first, Laura and I first got married, um, we were part of just a fantastic church, a huge church in the south of England. And uh, Laura was uh, the superstar on staff, kids pastor, and I was working in industry, so I was what I later termed pew fodder. Like, I basically just sat, I came and I sat on Sunday mornings, and I did the nodding, and I stood up, and I sang, and I sat down, and I nodded, and I shook the hand, and I went home, that's what I did. Um, and it was great, you know, that church was a great church. Many people's lives have been transformed with it. 
But over time, I started to sit there and I started to look around on a Sunday morning and I'd go, wow, man, you are a gifted person sitting next to me. It's like, wow, you, you have a communication gift. You would make an incredible teacher of the word. Or I'd look around another person and go, you're an incredible musician and you're anointed by the Holy Spirit. You'd make a great worship leader. Or you'd make a great um, church planter or you'd make a great volunteer in this space. I'd look around and yet every Sunday what would happen is we'd come and we would nod and we would occasionally put a hand in the air, only occasionally because we weren't quite that charismatic. Um, and then we would, just, we would look around, right, and then we'd go home. But I just got more and more frustrated, because I was like, God, I want to grow. I believe that there's a place for me to grow, but this doesn't feel like growing in the kingdom. And I feel like over time, God answered my prayer, which is very foolish to pray these kinds of prayers. And after a while, you know, the pastor of that church said, would you go? Maybe he was just annoyed by me by that point, I don't know. He said, would you go uh, with Laura and plant a new church on behalf of us in a new city? And so a little group of us, all those little volunteers who sat at the back of the church, we got up and we went and we planted a church in a nearby town. Now looking back, it was crazy. Not one of us had been to seminary. Not one of us had got any like, theological training. We were all volunteers. We were all just doing the work of you know, working during the week and we came in the evenings and the weekends. But we planted this church because we knew the Holy Spirit had called us to do it. Now, those first few services that we did, I can tell you, were probably absolutely dreadful, right? I wouldn't recommend looking them up on the internet if they're still there. I remember, this is a public confession, I remember just coming up to one Easter Sunday, um, I'd had a really busy week and I didn't have time to prepare a sermon. Um, and so I thought, what am I going to do? I thought, I know, you know, these people need to read the Easter story and reflect on it. And so what I'll do is I'll stand up on Sunday in front of all of them, and instead of preaching, I'll say, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take our Bibles and we're going to walk around the church site for the next half an hour reading the Easter story, and then we will come back. Now, it didn't go very well. <laughs> it wasn't, I don't recommend doing that in, front, in, in a main church setting. But we learned. We tried. And I was thinking about it this week. That after you, today, 10 years on, there are four churches around the globe that are pastored by ordained people who were the volunteers, the first four volunteers in that community. If you think about those who actually cut their leadership teeth in that little church plant, there are 15, 20 churches now all around the world which are pastored by people who cut their leadership in that church. Nonprofits have come out of that church. Lives have been transformed through that church. Many people have come to church, come to faith through that church. You know, and it just came from a bunch of people going, well, we don't know what we're doing, but we're going to give it a go. We're going to try, and lives have been transformed through it. That's what it means to build the kingdom. Now, we're not all called to be church planters, but I want to ask you this morning, what does it mean for you to bring the kingdom, to be the kingdom? When was the last time that you had a chat about your faith with a non-Christian who you live near? When was the last time you prayed with or for a non-Christian? Where is the kingdom of God that God might want to bring? Matt, Matt Dunn, last week, he brought an amazing prophetic word for us. If any of you are here and you heard it, he brought it from Isaiah 58. And if you want to read the whole thing, then just listen up to the podcast or the YouTube channel. But this is the, the core of what he said. He said, Arise, vintage Pasadena. It's time to rebuild. It's time to arise. It's time to start the work of rebuilding. It's time to put your hand to the work that God has given you to do. 
it's time to recognize the gracious hand of God and the favor that you have received, and it will lead you to the work of serving other people. Where this morning might God be asking you to serve, to jump in, to give it a go in the power of the Holy Spirit and see God's kingdom come as you grow. So we do it together. And then I just have two other quick points that I want to make um, before we get to communion, which is these. The first one is this, is that when we go, how we go, that we always must go building with humility. If you look back to the passage this morning, you will notice that the first group of people who are mentioned are the high priests. I mean, these guys were the superstars. They had all the bling. They had all the clothing. They were not the kind of people who would go and pick up rocks and build walls. That was not who they were. If you go down a little bit further in Nehemiah chapter 3, you read about craftsmen. You read about political leaders. You read about very important people. And yet there they are building with their hands, no, no um, excavators, no cranes, no dynamite, literally building stuff with their hands. But then in verse 5, if you notice, there's this little verse that says, the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. It's like a complete contrast. It's one verse in the whole thing. It's totally different. Everything else is harmony. And suddenly you get this. And of course, what you're reading about, I don't think is some political dispute or some union member's pay rights or whether or not someone you know, was asked to do something unreasonable. What you're reading about is very simple. This wealthy, influential group of people would not submit. So there was pride in them. There was pride And in the kingdom, there's always these two concepts going on. Pride and humility. Pride and humility. Right? Pride says, it's about me. It's about what I'm going to get, how I want it. It's about me having status and whether or not other people can get around what I want. Right? Humility says, it's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I need. It's not about what I'm going to get out of it. It's about how I can be part of the bigger story of what God wants to do in the world. Paul puts it like this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition, pride, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let, look, let each of you look not to your own, his own interests, but also, but also to the interests of others. Jesus says it like this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves humility, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their lives, whoever wants to be in control, will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Humility and pride are total opposites, and if we want to be kingdom people, if we want to be kingdom builders, then we also absolutely need to learn the art, the discipline of humility. And I want to just take a moment to call out something in this church, Um, something that Laura and I have spotted time and time again, which is that there is an incredible spirit of humility in this church. There is an incredible servant-heartedness about so many of you. Um, I'm not even going to name you this morning, Kirby Repco and everyone else. No, I'm not, (laughs) because you don't like it. But the reason you don't like it is because you are so humble. You know, there is an amazing sense of humility in service in this church, right? Last Sunday morning, 7.15 in the morning, looked out the window, it was raining, 
Like, what on earth? It was May in LA, and it was raining. And we didn't see it coming, and it was not in our plans, but it was obviously in God's plans, which meant that in, like, 20 minutes and planning, we had to turn this whole thing around, and we had a couple of hours to get ready for putting church inside. And by the time I got here at, like, 7.40 last Sunday morning, there was probably 10 people already moving furniture, moving stuff around, getting this place ready. By 8.30, there was probably 20 people. By 9.30, there was probably 40 people just setting up chairs, moving stuff. There was no complaining. There was no moaning. There was no, like, this is not what I want to do. It was just servant-heartedness. And I want to call that out in you because I think one of the marks of the future church, one of the things that's going to see God's kingdom come is when we learn to be a humble but bold church. And I want to say of you, and if you know somebody who's around you who is that person, just, just, just honor them today. You are a humble person, and in your humility, you will see God's kingdom built. I believe that. Thank you for what you do. I can't even begin to tell you the stories of what it means to be part of a church where people serve so humbly. What does it mean to build humbly? And by the way, if pride is your, one of your issues, and I'll just be honest, that over the past, in the past, at times, pride has been one of my issues. You know, I thought, wow, man, I want to do what I want to do. I want it to be about me then actually seeking out places of humble service is the best, best antidote to pride. There are times um, in my life when I have just literally had to go and say to my next door neighbor, I'm going to mow your lawn for the next couple of hours, and you don't need to know why, but I just want to mow the lawn. Or I'm just going to go and hang out with some of my homeless friends under the bridge. Because, because as we seek out humility, as we make ourselves less, not self-loathing, but we just make ourselves in a lower position, That's often how God wants to build us up and to get our identity in him. So humility is a big part of the story. And then finally, also, as we build in this way, humbly, committedly, that actually this is the way that unity comes to the church. Um, I'm sure you've been watching the news the last week. We've realized again, haven't we, how fragile peace is in the world and particularly how fragile peace is in the Middle East at the moment. But it's not even just in the world, it's not even just in the Middle East. Um, If you've been around the church long enough, you'll know that actually finding peace in the church is not always the easiest things, right? You know, the church, sadly, over the last 500 years has found it very easy to divide and to conquer, to step away from brothers and sisters, to fall out over all sorts of theological and other issues, right? But yet, here, in the middle of Nehemiah, in the middle of Jerusalem, this contested space on earth, here we see unity, the, next, the most uh, common phrase in today's passage is this, next to him, next to him, next to him, next to him. How do this group of people find unity? Well, it's actually very simple. They have a shared purpose. They have a common purpose that they're trying to achieve. Um, imagine this for a minute. Like if, if you got the Dodgers team together, got the whole roster, and you sat them in a circle in a room like this, and you said, like, let's look each other in the eyes today, boys, and let's debate the best song of all time ever. Or you went a bit further. Let's talk about like, who you should vote for. Or let's talk about religion. Or let's talk about ethics. Or let's talk about you know, whatever it might be. I can imagine what would happen. Fighting. right? It's not going to go very well. You see, because when you sit in a circle, when you look people in the eyes and you say, let's debate our differences, guess what happens? you recognize you have differences, right? You recognize that there is fighting to be done. But when you stand shoulder to shoulder, when you look together with brothers and sisters at a common problem, 
at a thing that you're trying to achieve, that is how you get great unity. That's the reason that the Dodgers, who are a bunch of different people from different nations, can go out and win the World Series. Why? Because they work together towards the common goal. And their common goal is very simple. Win. We as a church, we also have common goals, which is to see God's kingdom come. If we want to be a church of unity, if we want to be part of unity in the world, then actually we need to spend a little bit less time maybe debating why we're different. And we need to look at the reasons that we're the same as we go together for God's kingdom, right, in the world. Again, a few years ago now, but uh, we were living in a city and the church leaders said, we want to get all the Christians in the city together and we're going to put on the Easter story. We take up the whole city center and we're going to get actors, volunteer actors, and we're going to, we're going to play out the Easter story. And maybe like two, three, four thousand volunteers all came together, and actors and tech people, and you know, just put on this Easter story. Thousands and thousands of people came to watch it. And we couldn't believe it when we did it. Not because of the fact that loads of people came to faith, but we couldn't believe that actually all these other people in different churches actually were really lovely. We couldn't believe that we actually had a lot in common with them. We couldn't believe that they were actually Christians, and we were Christians. In fact, I don't remember once actually saying to any single one of them, wow, what's your view of predestination? Do you believe in single predestination, double predestination, triple predestination? Which is your view? What do you think about women in ministry? What do you think about that? That didn't happen. Why? Because we were busy doing the work of the kingdom. You know, in this city, there is great work of the kingdom. Matt talked about it last week. We are to be a people who are called to the great work of the kingdom and not to be caught up in the nuancy differences that we have with one another. And so as I finish, I just want to say this to you this morning. You know, where might God be inviting you into the story of the kingdom? Where might he be inviting you to serve? It might be a Sunday thing. It might be a vintage thing. But equally, it might be your neighbor. It might be your colleague. It might be the homeless person that you pass on the way to work in the morning. Where is God's kingdom going to come in your life? Secondly, what does it mean to serve humbly? What does it mean to put your hand to the till next to somebody else to build the thing that God wants to see happen here in Pasadena as in heaven? And then finally, maybe this morning, do you have somebody in your life who over the last year you found yourself not loving? not agreeing with, not wanting to spend time with? And where might God invite you simply to humbly serve them, serve alongside them this morning and this week? Let's pray as we come towards communion. We're just going to invite the Holy Spirit, as always, to come and just to bring to mind the things that he wants us.